you can be seated. And uh, we will invite uh, families that have got uh, kids who are in the first through the sixth grade that normally exit the service at this time to stay in with us today. It's the last Sunday of the month, and on those days, we all stay in and worship together. Good to see you today, and let me say a word of welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're always glad, when you can't be in the room, that uh, you can join us through Freedom Online. Welcome to you. I don't know about you, but uh, the the words that we just sang, I mean, the whole worship set was powerful, but the, the words of that last song are just so profound. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I don't know, but I suspect that you're like me, that there are just days and weeks where just what you see in the mirror, what you see when you look at your own life, can just make you feel like a less than kind of person. Like you just, surely you just don't measure up to what you, you know God would have expected of you and what he planned for your life. And and just, do you ever just have those days where you feel like, man, I don't know that the Lord would even want to listen to me. I, I was having one of those days this week, and in my quiet time, the Lord just spoke so personally and powerfully through his word. The truth that we just sang just reminded me, <laughs> my approval of you is always based on the goodness of Jesus. It was never based on, on whether you've been good enough this week or how you feel about yourself this week or how confident you are today. It was always about Jesus' goodness. Maybe you came in today and you're just feeling a little bit of the, the spiritual and, and you just don't feel the nearness of God in your life. And maybe you feel like that's, there's, there's this gap between you and him that you could not begin to cross over because you just feel like you haven't measured up. You don't feel good about yourself or where you are spiritually. You hadn't had meaningful, quiet times lately. Can I just remind you today that the Lord invites you to draw near, not because you've been good enough or I've been good enough or we deserve it, but because of Jesus and what he's done. And that when he looks at you, this is the thing that's so hard to get to sink in. When he looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees all the righteousness of Jesus. I know we didn't get that. Jesus looking at you today sees all the full righteousness of Jesus looking at you. That's just good news. To, to go, I see Charlie, but I see all of Jesus' perfection. I see John. I see Sally. I love them for who they are, and I see all the perfection of Jesus in them. Not because you had a good week, but because you're in him. That didn't have anything to do with the sermon today. I just feel like I needed that. I needed to get that off my chest. I needed that this week. So, all right. Thank you, Charlie. Well, um... We're in a series in Daniel. If you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Daniel 5. And uh, we're in a series that is entitled Unshakable. It's about how to thrive and overcome no matter what the world throws at you. John, I don't know if it's just the lights, but can you kick it up a little bit? It's just hot in here today. Thank you, sir. Now I've, I've called you out, John. Now anytime somebody's not happy about the AC, they know to call on you. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, that's a blessing to be the man in charge of the AC. Um, I hope 
that that the sort of the motto that we live by and the attitude that we carry with us is not life is hard but i'm holding on till jesus comes back hey, have you been around christians that that seems to be just the aura that they give off just oh it's hard you know when you just ask them how they're doing you just you just hear that heaviness Whew. I'm tired and it's hard, but I'm holding on till Jesus comes back. I don't want that to be our message. I don't want that to be my message. I mean, yes, I agree. Life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes we do good just to make it through today by the grace of God. But I don't want the thing that is sort of the defining mark of my life or of us as a church to be those people who are just trudging through till the day that Jesus comes back and snatches us out of all this. Jesus came to give us life, life to the full. Jesus came to usher us into the kingdom of God so that we could walk in victory, so that we could have abundant life in a world that is falling apart at the seams, and we can speak order back into that. We could usher people into the kingdom of God and bring the realities of the kingdom here in the world so that we don't just survive this world, so that we thrive in the world that God has made. Don't you want to buy into that message? So how do we position ourselves where we're not just the woe is me, scraping by kind of people? That's part of what we're going to look at today. How do we enter into that? Now, if uh, maybe I know summertime people are, are in and out. If you're not sort of caught up on where we are in the book of Daniel, very quick reminder. The beginning of Daniel is the point at which the last of the Jewish nation has fallen to the Babylonians. And Daniel and his three friends, along with about 25% of the population of, of the Jewish people who were left behind, are carried away to Babylon and everybody that's left behind is left in poverty for 70 years. This, this is God's judgment on his people for their idolatry and their having abandoned him. For 70 years they're going to live in exile. And so Daniel has been living in this reality. And where we're going to pick up the story today is way into that 70 years. Daniel's going to be in Babylon from the time he's 15 years old until he's 85 years old. Well, we are way into the back end of that time. Now, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he is a gray-headed man, if not a bald-headed man at this point. He's been there a long time. So what we're going to read in just a moment, remember Nebuchadnezzar was king whenever Daniel and his friends were carried away, and it was fairly early in his reign when they're carried away. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 45 years. His reign has ended. A couple of lesser rulers have taken his place in succession. And the two of them combined have ruled for about ten years. They're now dead and gone. And so Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, is now the king over the greatest empire on earth. And he's been on the throne for, depending on how you read history books, somewhere from two to ten years. What we're going to read today is about the last day of Belshazzar's reign. He was uh, the inheritor of all that his grandfather had accomplished. And it's a little bit of a, of a picture that's a warning sign, I think, to some of us as parents and grandparents. That some of the things we think we're just going to bless our kids with to make their lives so easy because we lay everything in their laps, a lot of times that's just going to blow up in our faces. Because wealth that is just given and never earned will ruin a person most of the time. Grandson inherits all the kingdom, all the wealth, all the power of his grandfather without having done anything to earn it or to, to really truly learn how to deal with that. 
He just gets it. And so he's the big man in charge, and he's a party animal. And where we pick up the story in Daniel 5, the Medes and the Persians, who are not friends, have come together for one purpose, and that is to destroy the greatest empire on earth, to destroy the Babylonians. They have invaded the land, and they have been able to march across the land. Their their combined armies are very great. And, And they've been able to sack any community that they wanted to except for the one great city, Babylon. And it looks like an impossibility because this city, there's nothing in the U.S. to compare it to. In fact, there's no fort in the Western Hemisphere that even comes close. I've been in the biggest fort in the Western Hemisphere in Havana, Cuba, and it's, it's pretty grand. It can't hold a candle to what Babylon looked like. It had walls all the way around this vast city that were 50 to 80 feet thick. You're not going to knock that down. I don't care what you bring up against it. There's nothing that would be able to knock that down. And it's such a vast city, even though they had laid siege to the city, they can wait you out. Because the Euphrates River runs through that big city underneath the the wall. And so it's a big enough city. You can continue to grow crops. You've got all the water that you need. You can continue to fish. You basically can survive indefinitely there. So it's like, y'all can sit out there on the other side of the wall all you want to. We don't care. That was the attitude of the king. And literally, he throws a great big party while the rest of the country has been sacked and the city is besieged because he's got the attitude, I don't care what happens to all those other people out there. In the city, we're doing just fine. He throws a party and calls together a thousand of his most important nobles and leaders, and he just gets drunk with all of them. And he takes it one step further than that. He doesn't just throw a party and get drunk. In the middle of his drunken condition, he says, hey, you remember all that really fancy stuff, the cups and all the, the, the wares that they took out of the Jewish temple back in Jerusalem? You remember Granddad Nebi, he, he brought those things back with him? Nebuchadnezzar had the good sense to just store those things away and not mess with them. He said, hey, just for fun, let's pull those things out and we'll use them to eat and drink and we'll, we'll worship all of our pagan gods using that. Bad bad mistake that's where we pick up the story Daniel 5 1 King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence under the influence of the wine stop right there any sentence that begins with under the influence of the wine ain't going to end well that's like when a southern boy says here hold my beer and watch this it's never going to end well Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand... It's not a man's hand, but it looks like a man's hand, appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. And as the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Bet you didn't even remember that was in the Bible, did you? It literally scared him so bad that he pooped his pants. 
Now, I have been frightened bad in my lifetime. I don't think I've ever been scared bad enough that I needed a fresh change of drawers. That is how badly it upset the king. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but could not read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. I don't even know what that sentence means. He's already scared enough. His knees are knocking together and he can't control his bodily functions. I don't know how you get more scared than that. But he's like, it's, it's gone from bad to worse. Verse 10, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Now, we realize we wouldn't say it that way, but don't you love how they're already describing Daniel? These pagans don't really know how to talk about the spirit of God the one true God being in him, but it's like something divine is in him. There's something supernatural about this guy. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Can you imagine being in the king's presence at this party when this happened? You know, I don't know what kind of music they've got blaring, but I'm sure it's loud. I'm sure that they are rocking out. It's it's a wild party. They're drunk. And in the middle of all the woo-woo, pass another bottle of wine, a hand shows up without a body. It's not thing from the Adams family, but, but something, you know, as creepy looking as that. Just a hand, and it begins to write in the plaster on the wall. And the king realizes for the first time in his life, he has come into the presence of the divine. Something supernatural, something far greater than him. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that this guy has never been anywhere that he's been in the presence of anyone greater than himself. For the first time in his life, somebody more powerful than him is in the room and he's writing on the wall. He's scared to death, doesn't know what to do, calls for people to come in and interpret this. Nobody can interpret it because what's written on the wall is written in Aramaic, which, by the way, is what Jesus and his contemporaries spoke when they were on earth 500 years later. But none of these Chaldeans spoke Aramaic. None of them could interpret what was on the wall. They had no idea. It was just gibberish to them. But the queen comes in and says, don't, don't fret about interpreting this because there is one man in the land who has knowledge and insight. He has wisdom like nobody else. There is something divine in his life. I'm telling you, he'll be able to tell you what this says. Because every time your predecessor, the great Nebuchadnezzar, had a problem, Daniel was the one he called on, and Daniel always had the answer. And so the king calls him in, and he gives his his same spiel. If you can interpret what's on the wall, I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'll put a gold chain around your neck. I'll make you the third most powerful man in the land, blah, blah, blah. Daniel is not impressed. 
Daniel has been there, done that. He has heard that speech from others before, and he has carried the second most important position in the greatest kingdom on earth. He's an old enough man to not be bowled over by the, the words of this brash young man. And so we'll pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and he humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. This is what we read about last week. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's, and he lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. It's a pretty good summary of what we read last week, isn't it? The man lost his mind for a long period of time. And until he was willing to acknowledge and honor God, his sanity and his kingdom were restored to him. When he did honor the Lord, came to truly know who the one true God was, God restored everything back to him. Verse 22. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. This is a critical line we're going to return to. You knew the whole story. You knew about your grandfather's greatness. You knew about his arrogance. You knew how God spoke to him so many different times. You knew how God humbled him. And you knew what the turning point in his life was. When he humbled himself before the one true God, God lifted him up. He gave him his kingdom back. You knew all of these things. But you didn't learn anything from it. We'll come back to that. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. And so Daniel says, fine, I'll interpret it for you. And he reads, there are just four words on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. The first word that's repeated twice that he interprets is the word numbered. The Lord says, numbered, numbered, numbered are your days, Belshazzar. And they come to an end tonight. The second word, tekel, means weighed. And he said, the Lord says with that word, you have been weighed in the balance and found lacking. And the last word, parsin, it's actually a play on words. Because just as it works in English, the, the word in uh, Aramaic sounded like Persian. It, it literally meant divided. And the message was, the Lord speaks the word divided over you because your kingdom is about to be divided between the Medes and the Persian. And you're going to lose it all tonight, and he's actually doing a play on words because as he says it, it sounds like he's saying Persian. And so then Belshazzar, well, I mean, at that point, don't you just wonder what he's going to say? I mean, don't you sort of halfway expect the king to go, oh, really? Well, in that case, let's sort of forget the 
purple robe and the gold chain and the position of third greatest power in the kingdom. I mean, if you'd brought me good news, I mean, you sort of don't expect him to still give him the reward, do you? But he does. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Once again, Daniel's confronted with a challenging situation at best. He goes in and he's got the courage to just speak the truth. I mean, you realize normally when a man or a woman would speak to a king in ancient times and would bring anything other than a positive and encouraging word, pretty much the next thing that they would hear is off with his head. You just don't say anything negative to the king, much less look him in the eye and say, your days are numbered and today is the last of them. You've been weighed in the balances and found lacking and you're about to lose your kingdom tonight. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, big boy. I mean, that's just not what you want to have to say. With great courage, he delivers the message. And in God's order of things, where we expect the guy to either be killed or tossed out on his ear, he gets promoted again. Every time in the story that Daniel does what God has him positioned to do, he ends up being promoted. And he's already said, I don't even want your gifts. I mean, you've got to think Daniel's looking at this. He can read the words on the wall. He can read Aramaic. God helps him understand what he's reading and, and what that's all about. And you've got to think, Daniel is probably thinking as he's reading that, he's fixing to give me a robe and a chain and a position of power. Because when he hears what I've got to say, he's going to be so angry, he's not going to want to give me anything. But God rewards him. And here's where it gets really crazy. Not only does he get rewarded for delivering a very difficult message, the kingdom falls that night. The city is sacked that very night. The king standing before him is killed that night. And Daniel survives. And in the very next breath, within the next one or two verses, as you dive into the next chapter, Darius, under the leadership of the Lord, recognizes the wisdom of Daniel and installs him in basically the same position under his kingdom. It makes you realize the, the world around us is in chaos. And we don't have to worry about it because the kingdom of God marches on. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Presidents and congressional leaders come and go and the people of God march on forward. The kingdom of God is not threatened by the events of this world. Daniel just did what he was assigned to do and kept on marching. A king falls before him, another one is raised up, and he continues to be blessed by the Lord. That is divine favor. Don't you want to walk with that kind of favor? By the way, history records outside the scriptures. It's enough that the scriptures tell us, but it's always cool when, when we have archaeological records and secular historical records that just tell us again that what we read in the scripture is spot on. We know more details of what happened on that night. Because it is kind of a curious thing, isn't it? Walls of 50 to 80 feet in depth and, and it's sacked in a night. You want to know how they did it? You've got to bear in mind when... Generals and armies would lay siege to a city like this. They took, they played the long game. They they didn't imagine, well, we're just going to march up and take it in a day. They'd camp sometimes for years. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had taken like three years to sack Jerusalem. He had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem in, leading up to its fall in 586. So as the Medes and the Persians camped around this 
walled city trying to figure out how are we going to take the city. They came up with a plan that just sounds so impossible without any modern equipment. They decided that their plan was that they would dig a gigantic trench, have a dam, and on the night that they're ready to invade, they would raise the dam and divert the waters of the Euphrates River that normally flowed through the city. That's a big trench. Having diverted the waters, it lowered the water level. It didn't completely eliminate the river going through the city, but it lowered it so much that the army could just march through the riverbed with their feet in the water and just march right into the city wall. And nobody in Babylon was ready for it. And the Medes and the Persians just marched straight up the riverbed into the city and took the city in one night. And Daniel watched the whole thing and basically got to go, yep, that's exactly what God said was going to happen tonight. And the king dies. Now, having considered this story, I mean, there's so many things that we can learn from it. But the thing that I want us to consider this morning is we're, we're given two leaders sort of side by side. One of them is, is the powerful man, Belshazzar. Grandson of the, the great king and the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on earth. And alongside him is this nobody Jewish guy who was carried away as an exile... There's really no reason he should have had any power from a world, worldly point of view. He wasn't born into a royal family. He's you know, pulled out of poverty. And yet, when it's all said and done, the first guy loses his power, loses his kingdom, loses his life, and is clearly rejected by God. And the second guy just continues to be elevated to greater and greater levels of influence and usefulness in the kingdom of God and in the hands of God. What is it that marks the difference between these two? And that's what I want us to consider today. So if you want to pull out your outlines, we're going to just dive right into the heart of the matter. Uh, A message that I've entitled, Are you learning from those who came before you? Because clearly that's a defining issue for these guys. Daniel did this and Belshazzar did not. Let's just start kind of with Daniel's reputation of how he even gets pulled into the story. The queen says of Daniel... Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. So call for Daniel and he'll tell you what the writing means. And and when the king speaks to him a couple of verses later, he says, I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. I would contend that that is a big part of why... God exalted him, and he tore down Belshazzar. Because Daniel lived his life by wisdom. All wisdom comes from the Lord. Daniel was a man of wisdom. I I asked our leadership team as we gathered for prayer this morning, how many of you want to learn to live with real wisdom in your life? I'll ask you the same question. How many of you in this room, you want wisdom for your life? Not, not a trick question. I'm not setting you up. <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. But how do you get wisdom? I mean, some of us, if we look back at our own track record, would have to say, based on my history, I don't think I've been walking in wisdom. Because the road that I've been on has had some major potholes in it. I mean, I, if, if we had time, we could testify about this. I could tell you some things that I've done in my life that have cost me, have cost people around me, because I did not make decisions based on wisdom. So how do you get wisdom? Now, here's the good news. Wisdom's a choice. 
You didn't get to choose how intelligent you were when you were born. Unfortunately, that was kind of pre-wired in. But what you do with that, and whether or not you learn to live with wisdom and walk in wisdom, that's up to you and me. And the scriptures are chock full of exhortations for us to seek wisdom and to live with wisdom. So how do you get wisdom? How do you live wisely? That's what we're going to talk about today. How do I become wise like Daniel? Well, four things from this story that, and from the scripture that I'll just point out to you for us to think about. And the first one is this. If you're going to... Gain real wisdom. First of all, we've got to learn the lessons of the prior generation and the wisdom of those who are still around us. You've got to draw from both of those. Belshazzar was not willing to do that. He, he had a lot of wisdom in the form of his grandfather who had tried it all, had done it all, and it took him a lifetime to finally come to the conclusion that there was one God and that that God was worthy of, of being honored and served and that he needed to make him known to everyone on earth. Belshazzar had no interest in that. He knew all that story. Not interested in that. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this in Ecclesiastes 10.10. 10, Using a dull axe requires great strength. So sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. It does. Some of us, our lives at times have looked like a dull axe. We're going hard. We're just not going smart. Working hard. Working hard to figure out this relationship thing. To figure out this career thing. Working hard. But but we're like somebody swinging a dull axe. Solomon said, you'd be far better off to spend some time every day sharpening the axe. So that you actually make progress. That's what wisdom will do. We're charged from the scriptures to always be sharpening the axe. Part of how you do this is by being a lifelong learner. Determining that every day is going to be a day for you to learn. You don't quit learning when you graduate from high school or you graduate from college. You're just getting warmed up at that point. You've just sort of got a frame of reference now to really begin to take on some real wisdom in life. Way too many of us said when, when we were done with 12th grade or done with college, we closed that book and closed that chapter of our lives and said, Whew, I'm glad I'm done with that. Now I can get on with living. And it's like we closed our minds too. Now every day is an invitation to be a learner. you just got to be intentional about it. And one of the greatest opportunities that we have for learning is the minds and lives of the people that God puts around us. We need to, to cultivate a mindset that says, everybody that I come in contact with today is somebody that I could learn something from. That They've experienced something. They've been somewhere. They've, they've done something that I haven't. They, they've learned some skills that I could really learn something from them. Some of us are just so busy wanting to tell our story and wanting to impress other people that we don't pause to consider what have they been through? What do they know that I could learn from them if I just listen? But if I'm busy controlling the conversation and doing all the talking, I don't learn anything from the people around me. Job 8, 8 says, ask old people. Find out what their ancestors learned because we were only born yesterday and know nothing. That's a great passage, isn't it? I mean, I know in church we usually don't say old people, but since Job said it, we can just get away with it. Just ask the old people. Find somebody with gray hair or no hair. 
and ask them. If they've lived longer than you, they probably know more than you. That's not cultivated very well in our time, is it? In fact, I sort of say those of us in the younger generation, I'm 50, so I don't guess I can get away with saying that anymore. I think I have passed the mid-stripe on this this thing called life. But uh, I think as younger folks, we feel like, oh, those old folks, I mean, life was so different back then. What have they got to offer us today? They, They don't even know how to live in the modern age. It doesn't matter how much technology advances. The key issues of life aren't defined, defined by keystrokes and what happens on a computer screen. It's about life and relationships and faith. And the older generation knows a lot about that. We would do well to heed Job's words, to, to ask and listen and learn. And Belshazzar had no interest in doing that. He knew. He knew about his granddad. That's all he needed to know. And thinking about that, just sort of thinking through, man, we all do need certain kinds of people in our lives. It occurred to me, five different specific types of people that you need to have in your life. And not all of these are the ones that you learn from, but I just thought, eh, let's just, let's just lay them all out there real quickly. In your outline, I've just spelled out five of them to you. The first group of people that you need in your life, and they usually kind of come one at a time, is mentors. We all need mentors for different seasons of our lives. And you know what a mentor is. It's somebody who already has learned a significant set of life skills that you need for yourself. And the reason that we need these is because we just don't have enough time to learn all the lessons of life on our own. It would take way more than 80 or 100 years. You just don't have time to make all of your own mistakes and learn all of your own lessons. We need people who've already gone before us who can say, let me tell you how to do this right so you don't spend the next 20 years screwing it up and paying the price for that. Now, they come in different seasons of our lives, but we've got to be intentional to recognize them and to embrace them as people who really get to speak into our lives to shape us and change us. I I spent some time reflecting this week on some of the key mentors in my life. The first big one for me was my older brother, Ron. He's five years older than me, and when I was a child and an adolescent... He was just enough years ahead of me, and he he lived with such a a rock-solid faith and just set an example that was worthy of imitating. He was the first mentor in my life, and when he went off to Auburn to college, it's hard to say those words even after all these years. Yeah, He rooted for Alabama every day he was there, though, so he's a good man. When he went off to college to Auburn, God brought another mentor in my life. It was a student pastor who did so much to prepare me for that next phase of life where so many things can be compromised to prepare me for, you know, challenges in terms of sexuality and, and peer pressure and all those kinds of things. And uh, when I went off to, to college and, and then realized that God had called me into ministry and was preparing for ministry, God brought another student pastor several years older than me that I got to be a volunteer under for years. And, man, he really just helped me to develop a heart for the Lord where just living for Jesus above everything else was top priority. And he modeled that so well in my life and gave me opportunities to learn how to do the basic things that we're called, to do, called on to do in ministry. And then following that time, when I was in seminary and uh, was at that time attending a very large church in Tuscaloosa, had thousands of members, and um, we were new to the church, and, and literally the pastor didn't even know my name. And yet I felt so impressed that I really needed somebody like 
that pastor pouring into my life. And I'll never forget uh, the evening that I went up to him after the service and introduced myself and said, look, I, I don't know if you've got time for this or not, but I'm a seminary student. Just told him this is the very short version of my life and where it felt like God was calling me and I knew I was called into the pastorate. And I said, you know, I realize your time's limited, but I would love the opportunity to spend time with you and just to learn from you. I don't know if you've got time each week or however you'd want to do that, but if, if you have any time, I would just love to learn all that I can from you. And I remember the look on his face. It was just kind of like, I, I don't know what to make of this. He said, I've never had anybody ask me that before, but um, let me think about it for a week. And I didn't know if he was going to come back and blow me off in a week or what, but he came back a week later and he said, I've thought about it. And if you're serious about this, I want you to meet me every, I don't remember, like Tuesday at such and such a time. And, and we'll go from there. I said, great. For the next couple of years, he took me to every kind of thing you can imagine a pastor doing in ministry. If somebody was dying and he had to go in and minister while they were dying, he took me with him. If he had to do a funeral, he took me with him. I mean, he threw me into situations where he sometimes would throw me in the deep end of the pool, but he'd always be standing right there with me. He took me through all kinds of things that pastors have to do, but I didn't have to do them alone the first time that I did them because I had a mentor walking with me through that. The next season of my life, God clearly led me to a man who was 11 years older than me, married and had kids as I did, but he was further along in that, and The Lord clearly paired me with him because I needed to learn about family life and about being a father. And so for the next two years, every Monday morning at 6 in the morning, we met together and we dove into the Word and into just exploring how to do life and how to do marriage and how to do parenting together. I learned so much from Bill Edwards in doing that. When God moved me to Fairhope, he showed me a retired pastor who had been the executive pastor of the largest Baptist church in America. He had retired from Second Baptist Church of Houston to Fairhope, Alabama, and he's just just kind of rocking along, enjoying retirement. I went to him and asked him the same question. Could I just spend some time with you for the next year or year and a half? I got to, to sit with a man who had like 50 years of experience and wisdom, and he just dumped that stuff into me week after week. I cannot tell you the value of the lessons that I learned from these people along the way. And virtually none of that was coincidental or just happened by itself. You see, there are times where we've got to be thoughtful and intentional to pray and then seek people out and say, could we just spend some time getting to know each other better? I mean, sometimes be as intentional as saying, by any chance, could we just... Take an hour together each week, or could I buy you coffee every couple of weeks? But just be intentional to make sure I want to be with you so I can listen to you and ask you questions. There's such benefit from having mentors. Now, there's a second group that I listed, and those are models. We're not talking about Victoria's Secret here. We're talking about examples that that you can truly imitate. Now, you may say in the model the same as a mentor. The difference is a mentor you've got to know. They've got to be alive and somebody that you can personally ask questions of. A model typically isn't somebody that you know. A model may be somebody that lives on the other side of the country or in another country or who lived in another generation. They don't have to be alive. I shared one of my models with you last Sunday that Rick Warren is is a real model for me and has been for years. I read his books. I've subscribed to the stuff that he puts online for years and... um, you know, I've only met Rick once. He wouldn't remember me from anybody. 
but he's had a huge influence on my life because he's done a lot that's right. And I've just been able to, to look at the things that he's done. I don't try and imitate everything that he's done, but learn what I can from his example. There are other pastors and leaders that have served that way for me. Two of the most important models in my life died way before I was ever born. D.L. Moody is one of those. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of those. And the way that you, you learn from models like that is you read their biographies. I was so impacted by the way that these men lived their lives, even though they didn't live in my generation. And again, it just it takes intentionality that you seek out people who do well what you want to do well. And some of this just takes the time. We've got to be willing to read and learn. The third group is partners. Partners are not mentors. They're, they're the people who are in the trenches with you. They work with you. They are committed to what you're doing and helping you to do it well. And, you know, some of the most important partners in my life are in this room. I mean, my wife is my most important partner. We've only been married for about four years. And I'll tell you, when you first get married, in theory, you're partners. But it takes you some time to get synced up as partners. Because you've been pulling in different directions, committed to different things. It took us six months to a year to sort of really become partners together in what we were doing, pulling in the same direction, doing the same things. Now she's the most important partner that I have in life and in ministry. There's some other really important partners in this room. If I had to just pick one outside of my wife to, to you know, run the distance with, it would be John Beck. Because John and I have, have been together for 14 or 15 years now. John understands... Where we're headed as well as anybody on this planet does. John is as committed to it as anybody that I know. I I know you could run over me with a bus today and John would not slow down. John understands the vision and direction of the church and he is as committed to it as I am. And so I know I have a full partner in him and in Sally. Other important partners in the room. He'll... Scold me for mentioning him, but Mike Sappington. Mike always sits on the back road, doesn't like the light shine on him. Mike Sappington is an absolute partner in this ministry. He has been from the very first day. He was as excited as I was about getting this thing rolling six years ago. I never have to check to see if Mike is doing what the church needs for him to do because he is as committed to it as anybody ever could be and does it with with care and with excellence you need partners like that you need to know who the people are who are committed to what you're doing that you can really trust a fourth group is friends you didn't need that on a piece of paper but we all need some people who they may not be committed to all the same things we are they may not work with us they don't have to be our mentors you just need some people who are going to love you and support you when you don't deserve to be loved loved and supported because they are just all all the way in for you they just love you and then the fifth group is understudies. Everybody needs a Paul in their life and everybody needs a Timothy in their life. This whole thing of wisdom, it's like a river that flows. You need it flowing into you and you need it pouring out of you. There's always somebody who's a step behind you. And I know we can do the false humility thing and say, well, I just don't think I really know enough. I need anybody to be learning from me. They might learn bad habits. Oh, come on. Get over that. Seriously? I mean, obviously we could all pass on bad things. Don't pass on the bad stuff. Just be real and give away what you've learned. But be intentional about that. I've always got guys that I'm in the discipleship process with right now. It's Charlie Lemon and Stone Keener. And every Monday morning, 7 o'clock, we are gathered in here doing the whole thing of, of discipleship. But also just learning how to do life together. How to be better husbands and just how to be men of integrity. And, and there's a cycle to that. 
We've been at it together for about a year. And in another few months, we'll finish this cycle. And they'll go begin to pour into other people. And I'll begin to pour into others as well. But we need to be intentional about investing time in the next generation. We need to be receiving the wisdom of those who've gone before us. But we better be passing it on to somebody. And I don't care how young you are. There's always somebody that you can be pouring into. It's a part of how God just does things in the kingdom. The word spells this out. That the older men should be passing it on to the younger men. Hey, you can be 18 years old. There's younger men. The 14 and the 15 year olds need to learn how to begin to do adolescence. Best person to learn it from. Somebody who's just a few years older than them. So we need to be intentional about seeking these folks out. Reading biographies. Connecting. Building these relationships. Bottom line here is. The lessons are in the past. The opportunities are in the present and the future. But you're going to miss most of your opportunities if you're not real careful to learn the lessons of the past from people that God has strategically placed around you who've already been there and done that. Now ultimately, the Bible becomes one of our ultimate sources of great biographies to learn from. Guys like Daniel and Moses and Abraham and and David and Esther. And I love the fact that these biographies, Old and New Testaments, are just so real. They don't just show us superheroes. They show us real people with major faults and struggles in their lives. And yet God working redemptively in every one of their stories and every one of their lives. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 about how God wants us to use the scriptures as our, our primer to, to learn from these lives, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave the evil things as they did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. He's telling the story from Exodus 32 about the golden calf and all the chaos that surrounded that day. He's just using it as an illustration to say, we've got all these stories written down. And they're there to instruct us and to warn us so that we don't have to fall into the same traps that these people did. So reading and pursuing relationships is a big part of growing in wisdom. Number two, maintain a humble attitude that honors God. You realize that humility and teachability go hand in hand, don't you? An attitude that says, I don't know it all. That's why I want to learn from you is a huge part of, of growing in wisdom. God, I want to learn from you. I want to learn from your people. Somebody has said, be humble or you'll stumble. And that's so true. The scripture says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? Before a fall. So we begin by just acknowledging, God, you're God and I'm not. By the way, if you struggle with stress a lot... Hey, let me just give you a little mantra to try. You, you just, when you feel yourself getting stressed out, you, you just pause and do this three times. Under your breath, you just say, God is God, and I am not. So I don't have to be in control. God is God, and I am not. So I don't have to figure it out. God is God, and I am not. So I don't have to fix it all. When you can just humble yourself And acknowledge, God's got it figured out. I don't have it figured out. That's the beginning point of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33 says, Reverence for the Lord is an education in itself. You must be humble before you can ever receive honors. 
So if you have a goal to be wise, start by getting to know God and His Word. I'll guarantee you, you'll be wiser with money. You'll be wiser in relationships. You'll be wiser in dealing with conflict. You'll be wiser in solving problems. And for no extra charge, I'm going to throw this in. You want to know what the first mark of humility before God is for a follower of Christ? Baptism. The first mark of humility is that you're willing to be baptized. Today's a good day to be able to say that because we're going to have baptism in just a few minutes. I love it. John and Nick are both going to be baptized today. Now, I love any time anybody of any age gets baptized. But there is something powerful to me to see middle-aged men who are willing to step up and humble themselves and say, I want to follow Christ in baptism. I will do this before my church family. There is power in that. That always winds up not just impacting those who are baptized, but it, it touches and impacts the lives of those who witness what's going on there. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people who have made a private commitment to follow Christ. And the first thing that we talk about is, now's the time to be baptized. The first thing you do as a follower of Christ is you make your, your new birth, your new life in Christ known through baptism. I can't count how many times people say, well, now about that. I don't know if I'm ready for that just yet. I'm going to tell you straight up what I say. That's not optional. If you're not ready for baptism, you're not ready to follow Jesus. Because the first thing Jesus says is to be baptized. You see, it's an act of humility. Because pride says, oh, but I'm, all those people are going to be looking at me. My hair is going to get wet. My clothes are going to cling to me. They're going to see my extra 30 I'm carrying. You know, it's, I don't like all that attention. Humility says, God it's your plan. And if your plan says, get in the water, I'll get in the water. People say, oh, well, but I've already done that. I was baptized as an infant. Come on. Let's get our thinking straight. Jesus was dedicated as an infant by Mary and Joseph. He did not make a commitment that day. He was a few days old. His parents made a commitment to the Lord when they dedicated Jesus. When Jesus was a grown man, he chose to be baptized. That was his declaration of commitment. That was his declaration of connecting with the family of God and the people of God. He did that as an adult, and it didn't have anything to do with whether or not he got dedicated as an infant. So if that's been hanging you up, just get on the Jesus train and say, yeah, we got the infant thing done by our parents. Praise God for their commitment. Now I'm a grown-up. I'm going to demonstrate my commitment. The first act of humility is to get baptized. Number three, refuse to fill my mind with garbage. Somebody say amen. You know, we worry about water pollution and air pollution. We should. We should take good care of the planet. We ought to be more concerned about mind pollution. We get our heads polluted with all kinds of ideas and images and crazy notions that get us off track into bad places. We worry a lot about what we're going to feed our bodies with. My goodness, the number of diet plans and books and websites and videos devoted to making sure we get the right things pumped into our bodies. We need to get even more concerned about what it is we're pumping into our minds because, yeah, we need to have healthy bodies, but we need healthy minds more than anything else. 
Proverbs 15:14 says, A wise person is hungry for knowledge, while the fool feeds on trash. Mm. Yeah, the, the fool is always contrasted with the person of wisdom in Proverbs. So it says the fool feeds on trash. So just thinking about that, I, I want you to consider feeding on things that are going to lead toward wisdom, I want you to consider there are four kinds of things that you can feed your mind with. This will be easy to remember. You don't have to write it down. It's not in your outline, but you'll remember it. Consider the four things you can feed yourself with, physically or in your mind. The first thing is poison. You can. You, you can feed your mind or your body with poison. Poison is all that stuff out there. It's going to hurt you. It's going to make you sick. It might kill you. It's bad for you. And we all know that there are, there are images and words and songs that are full of violence or they're sexually explicit or they're just so vulgar and full of just rotten language that it is nothing but poison. All it does is make us sick. And there's only one way of dealing with it. I mean, there's no good way to take poison. I'll just do a little bit a day. What fool's going to do that? Only good dose of poison is none. And so to just recognize, hey, there are things I don't need to watch. Some of the excuses that as believers will make, oh, yeah, I mean, this movie, I know it was rated this, but it was just, it was just for the violence and the sexuality. Well, what else is there? I mean, good grief. We need to realize stuff that is poison and go, the only appropriate dose of poison is none. We avoid poison. The second category is junk food. I like junk food a lot, as you can see. My favorite junk food is chips and dip. About 9 o'clock at night, I had ruffles, corn chips, and good dip. There's more to that name, and I can't say it in church because it would be poison. But uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. The name has a vulgarity in it. Yes, it is good dip. Junk food. We all like junk food physically and mentally. And it's okay to have some junk food. I mean, everybody's going to have some junk food. It's okay to have. You know, it, when we're talking about the mental version of this, just think of it as mental Twinkies. You know, a, a Twinkie has no nutrition, nutritional value whatsoever. You can't live on Twinkies. It's just like eating air with calories. Well, there are plenty of things that you can take in your mind that are just mental Twinkies. I mean, some of the things that I love, you know, I love to watch sports. It's great. But I don't benefit from it. It's just mental Twinkies. I love to watch Andy Griffith. Everybody loves Raymond. Mental Twinkies. It's not, not building me up. It's just... Like having chips at night. It's just entertaining. We, we've all got our mental Twinkies. Time spent on Facebook, Snapchat, YouTube. Most of that's mental Twinkies. Time just, just watching brainless TV. We've all got to have some bed time. It's okay. There's room for some junk food in your diet. Just You've got to be careful not to overdo the junk food. And then there's a, a third category, and that's the healthy foods. The things that you... You do need to be taking in the brain foods. We all know what that is physically, but in terms of mental brain food, the things that help us understand life, the world around us, and relationships, that's healthy brain food. So literally, you know, math, science, 
culture, languages, current events. All of that's healthy brain food. You know, reading about marriage and relationships and how to do these things. Well, all that's healthy brain food. It's helping me to to understand life and the world. You know, some of that doesn't look spiritual in nature. I, I like to just make sure I stay caught up on world events. I mean, two of the sites that I visit every day on my phone, AL.com and NBCNews.com. I stay dialed into what's going on locally and what's going on in the world. And when I'm staying dialed into what's going on in the world, which is one of my little nerd things, is I'm, I'm always going to the science section in terms of, of national and world news. Can I tell you, as an aside, one that I read last Sunday, it, it came out while we were in church last Sunday, NBCNews.com, their science section, said, big announcement, 12 new moons located orbiting Jupiter. I, I'm, I like stuff like that because I'm a science nerd. But 12 moons that had not been found before orbiting the planet. You may say, well, big deal. Who cares how many moons orbit Jupiter? Here's the catch in that. Scientists have discovered that a bunch of those moons are not rotating in the right direction. They're orbiting together, and a bunch of them are rotating in the wrong direction. What do you mean by the wrong direction? What I mean is, if things happened through a big bang, everything would happen symmetrically. All this spinning matter would spin stuff out so that it all orbits in the same direction and it all rotates in the same direction. The only way that we have found planets spinning in the wrong direction and moons spinning in the wrong direction is if some divine being more powerful than anything we found in the universe just said, I want that one to spin counterclockwise and that one to spin clockwise. Scientists can't explain it. They just find these moons and they're, they're spinning in opposite directions. And how can that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. An all-powerful God says, let it be so. Clockwise, counterclockwise. Okay, I know you didn't come to church to hear about that. <laughs> My point being, it's just brain food. It just feeds us in a healthy way. And then there's superfoods. The kale of life. The spinaches of life. The scripture and biblical teaching is our superfood. You want to grow in wisdom, you've got to get in the Word. And you may ask yourself, why is it I don't have more of an appetite for the Word? I'll tell you the two biggest reasons. We've either got some poison coming in. Poison makes you sick, and when you're sick, you're not hungry for good stuff. Or you've got too much junk food. If I watch six or eight hours of TV, movies, sports, YouTube, whatever, if I do that for six or eight hours, I assure you, I'm not going, man, bring on the Word. I want to just get in the Word. No, it's like, I don't want anything else. I want to nap. You know, I want to go outside. If we fill our minds with nothing but junk food, you won't have an appetite for the Word. So be thoughtful about what you're filling your mind with. And then fourth and finally, put into practice what I've already learned. If you're going to grow in wisdom, you've got to put in practice what you've learned. God is not interested in just giving you new truth to satisfy your curiosity or mind. God gives us truth so that we live life differently. And when we don't put into practice the truth that He's already given us, don't expect Him to give more. Truth is given to be applied. There's an old Geico ad that used to say, You aren't a firefighter until you fought a fire. And you aren't an author until you have written a book or a play or something. You're not an actor until you've acted in a movie or a, or a TV show or something. And we could add to that. And you're not really a believer or a follower of Christ until you live out your faith. 
There are way too many Christians who are professing their faith and they can tell you all the stuff that they believe, but it hasn't transformed how they live their lives. We only truly believe the parts that we're living. In fact, I want you to write this down. It's not in your notes. I just want you to write it somewhere. I haven't learned it until I do it. I want you to just repeat that one with me. I haven't learned it until I do it. One more time. I haven't learned it until I do it. I could say, do you believe the Bible? And most of us go, yes, I believe the Bible. How much of it do we live? Because we really only believe the parts that we're living out. This was Belshazzar's problem. Oh, he, he knew some stuff. He knew about what had happened in the past. He just didn't put it into practice. He didn't really learn anything from it. Daniel said, King Belshazzar, even though you knew, everybody say you knew. You knew all that happened to your father Nebuchadnezzar. You didn't learn. Say that with me. You didn't learn from his life and you still refuse to humble yourself before God who rules from heaven. You knew these things, but you didn't put them into practice. How many times have we been guilty of this? Had the head knowledge, it didn't transform how we lived our lives. Such a big difference between knowing and learning. You know, I can go to all kinds of marriage seminars and conferences and fill my head with all kinds of knowledge about how to have a great marriage. But if I go home and am just a selfish brute and don't put those things into practice, I haven't learned anything, have I? I've just accumulated knowledge. I can read all kinds of books and watch all kinds of YouTube videos about how to be healthy, have the perfect diet and all the right exercises to do. But if I'm sitting my big rear end on the couch the whole time I'm doing that, eating my ruffles and dip, I haven't learned anything. There's no value to it. There's no wisdom in it unless I take knowledge and put it into practice. Belshazzar wasn't willing to do that. Bible says wisdom doesn't come from knowing, from doing. So here's the lesson for the day. If I don't learn from the generations before me, I'm going to end up making the same mistakes. Can I just tell you this? That the, the biggest, most common mistake that I have observed people making as I've interacted and just listened for decades is that I have known countless people, I think it is the single most common mistake people in the Bible Belt make, is that people miss heaven by 18 inches. You know what I mean when I say that? The distance between your head and your heart. It's like everybody you talk to on the street, they all know about Jesus. They all know about the cross. They all know about the resurrection. But then when you talk to them about a personal relationship with Christ that has transformed how they live their lives, just get that glazed over look on their faces. Well, I got baptized when I was in vacation Bible school. I used to go to church when I was a kid. No, I'm talking about, do you know Jesus today? Are you a follower of Jesus today? I know who you're talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, does your heart know him? If you trusted him, do you follow him with the way that you live your life? How has knowing Jesus transformed the way that you live your life? My great fear, and I know it's reality, is that... 1 Timothy 6.1 is true today of so many. Some of these people have missed their most, the most important thing in life. They don't know God. You know, you may know string theory. You may know chaos theory. You may know quantum physics. But if you don't know God, 
you missed out on what life is all about. None of that other stuff is going to have any value if you don't know God. John opened the day with a call to worship that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not to be afraid of Him in that sense, but to respect Him, to honor Him, to seek to, to know Him and live yielded to Him. God wants us to all walk in wisdom. He wants us to all walk in a personal relationship with Him. Would you join me as we together collectively go to Him in prayer right now? Father, we do want to know you. We want to live in line with your will and your plan. And we want to be men and women who walk in wisdom. And we realize there are a lot of things in our, our lives in the past that indicate that we've, we've missed out on that. Thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy. I pray that you just speak to us where we are here today. Lord, I know there are some under the sound of my voice who have had a head knowledge of you. They, they know about who Jesus is and what he's done. And yet in their hearts they have not yet trusted Jesus as Lord. I pray that you give gifts of faith away. Not just in this room, but to people who are watching and listening online. If you realize that, that describes your life, that you've missed out on the most important thing in life, would you just right now, in a simple prayer of faith, enter into a new relationship with Christ by just silently from your heart, just praying in earnest, God, I believe in you, I've known about you, but now I want to know you. I want to trust you, I want to follow you. Begin by asking you to forgive me and to make me new. Fill me with your wisdom. Help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. God, I thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. I want to just ask you also if today, just in listening to the message, you know you already know the Lord. But you realize, man, I need to grow in wisdom. Why don't you ask the Lord to just give you insight as to where you need to start? Is it by seeking out a mentor? Is it by reading? Is it by getting into the Word? Is there some major lesson that you have not been putting into practice that you need to, to lay hold of now that you know that's been your hold up? And whatever that is, would you just ask God to give you the grace to follow through and have staying power with that? It's only by your power we can be the people that you've called us to be. And so we ask you today for that. Both the desire and the ability to do what you desire. And we pray this with expectant hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.